Good morning. It's wonderful to have uh, Father Paul's son introduce us this morning. <laughs> that uh, a shave and a haircut really does wonders <laughs> for a person. <laughs> I want to talk to you this morning about money, this week and next week. Uh, these kinds of talks make a lot of people nervous, so that's why Father Paul sent out a beware notice uh, on the email this week, especially if you've been traumatized by pastors uh, over this kind of subject in your past. For me, money has always been a dreaded subject as a pastor to talk about it, probably because of the caricature that the church is always after people's money. It's actually what kept me out of the ministry when I was young, uh, for a number of years. I felt the calling to be involved with ministry, uh, but I kept putting it off. I became a professional photographer for years. I went to nursing school. I kept trying to avoid this business of jumping into ministry. I was committed to ministry, committing to caring for the church, but I wanted to do ministry without having to take up offerings, without having to take a salary. So I thought, well, I'll just figure out how to take care of myself and then I'll just do ministry as an aside. I feel better about it today because I'm not salaried a church worker at all and because I'm old enough to not care about what people think. <laughs> so the duty has fallen to me <laughs> for these next couple weeks. So buckle up. All right. The Bible tells us that money is both wonderful and deadly. It is one of the ways that God blesses people. And perhaps more surprisingly, it can actually enhance our relationship with God, this business of money. All you have to do is look around to see that God loves to provide for his creation. Do you have a switch out? Because it sounds like a reverberation thing going on. There we go. Is that better? Okay. All you have to do is look around and, and you see, it's a little loud, I think. You see that um, God loves to provide for his creation. There's an abundance everywhere. I mean, you look up into the sky, into the universe, and you see um, an estimated two trillion galaxies. The opening scene of the Bible in the Garden of Eden, we see this abundance. It was said in Genesis 2, the gold of that land is good. And then the description given at the end of the Bible of our eternal home in Revelations 21 says, the great street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. It's this idea of God lavishing wherever his people are. And the story of the Bible, it reveals that God wants human beings to trust him in every part of their lives, not just the spiritual parts, but he wants us to trust him in physical ways as well. Our gospel reading tells as much. It's where Jesus says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or your body, what you're going to put on it. Uh, is not life more important than food and your body more important than clothes? And then he mentions the birds of the air, how they don't store, reap, sow, or reap. It's important, sow or reap. And yet God takes care of them and feeds them. And he says, aren't you of more value than they are? And he talks about who by worrying can add even a single hour to your life, which means God's holding you. And why do you worry about clothes? Look at the lilies of the field, he says. They don't labor. They don't spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor, Solomon was the great king who was the richest king. 
Solomon wasn't dressed like any of these. It's, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, gone tomorrow, how much more will he clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Jesus is saying, why don't you dare have faith about physicality? So don't worry about what we eat or what shall we drink, what shall we wear? And remember, Jesus is talking about people who are in abject poverty, who are in subsistence living, who are trying to figure out where to get a meal, right? He says, the pagans run after that stuff. Your father knows you need them. But first, he says, seek God's kingdom. In other words, seek God's influence. Seek God's help. And all these things will be added to you as well. What a challenging thought. Catherine Marshall, one of my favorite authors, who's passed away, she writes about this in a beautiful way. She says, quote, if we are to believe Jesus, his father and our father is the God of all life and his caring and provision include a sheep herder's lost lamb, a falling sparrow, a sick child, the hunger pangs of a crowd of 4,000, the need for wine at a wedding feast and the plight of professional fishermen who toiled all night and caught nothing. These vignettes scattered through the Gospels like little patches of gold dust say to us, no creaturely need is outside the scope or the range of prayer, end quote. Back in the early 1970s, uh, I first surrendered my life to Jesus. And whoever you talk to, every serious believer I knew, we only talked about surrender, sacrifice, giving up our lives for the cause of Christ, the deeper life. <laughs> we used to sit around and muse about how cool it would be to actually die for Jesus. We're in our teens. We never thought about praying for God to provide us anything monetarily or physically. We tied down to the penny, but we never thought about that. We thought faith was about surrendering control to Jesus. If he provides, great. If not, we needed to be okay to die smiling. We were a die-to-self-suffering kind of crowd. Hard became a badge of spirituality for my buds and me's. How many of you remember those days? Some of you do. We were part of the Watchman Knee and Derek Prince crowd. <laughs> when Gil and I first heard the claim that God wanted to answer specific prayers about material things, it was a bit of a stretch for us. I mean, it seemed too selfish, seemed wrong, worldly. But somebody took the time to sit down with us and show us promises in the Bible of God's willingness and longing to provide and help us in material ways. Verses like Philippians 4, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And though I, I initially tried to spiritualize that to be, he would meet all my spiritual needs, the context is obviously financial. After some study, it began to become clear to us that God cares about money and physical provision for his children. And our first provision miracle happened with a rental property in 1977. Gail and I had been married the year before, and we lived in this apartment that we uh, mockingly called the palace. It had one bedroom and a little sitting room and a kitchen and then a, a, a 
closet that had been turned into a, a toilet and a little tiny shower. And, uh, and in the middle of it, we were in Wisconsin, was one space heater in frigid Wisconsin. So by the time, you know, those temperatures would dip so low, when it was freezing in the winter, we'd get up, first thing we go to is that heater in the middle of that room. We were paying $90 a month and could barely afford it. We both had jobs, but that's what the deal was back then. Some friends of ours in St. Louis we were talking to told us how they had gotten this home in St. Louis for $240 a month in a market that where small homes are renting for, to, for close to $500 a month. And they told us their story. They said that we looked at our budget and we asked God to help us. We asked God for a home that would fit that price range. And I remember when I heard them say it, I mean, I had a kind of mix of both anger and jealousy. I was a little angry because you shouldn't bother God with such things. And then I was a little jealous because I wish that I could bother God about such things. So Gail and I decided to pray about it and we wondered if God would do it for us. We just didn't know quite what to think. We were asking him to help us not to quash our disappointment in life, but because we were okay with not having much, but we were wanting to say, God, we are open to you caring for us in a way that makes sense for us. And so we examined our budget. We decided that though it would be a stretch, we probably could come up with $125 a month. <laughs> and so we prayed, Lord, we wouldn't even ask you about this if we hadn't run into some Bible promises and seen those guys get blessed. But we're asking you for a home of $125 for $125 a month. And we trust you to do it in Jesus' name. And then we watched the paper. Now, we'd already been watching the Marshfield News Herald for a few weeks, and, and there was no rental homes for under $300 in that little town. Uh, but three days after we prayed, an ad appeared for a two-bedroom home for $125 a month. And we went to see it. And we looked at it, it was this beautiful little, it was a small little house, but it was so sweet. And we did a Jericho march around it. <clears throat> if you don't know what that is, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> and we thank God that it had appeared. And, and, and we called the number in the ad. It was this elderly woman, Mrs. Olinsky. And she told us, you know, I'm probably asking too little for the house. I've had so many, many calls about it. And so we went to see her, and while she was interviewing us, a professor from the local uh, uh, junior college called and offered her considerably more for the house while we're sitting there. And she goes, oh, that's a lot of money. You know, and we, were, we just kind of sat there. We knew this might not be the one, but we suspected that it was. God was somehow answering our prayer. And we heard her say after she paused with that guy, well, Thank you for the offer, but I want to give it to this nice young couple. It's hard to describe the potpourri of feelings that we had in that moment as we were sitting there. We were elated. It humbled us. We felt loved, cared for. We felt undone, broken by the fact that Almighty God had cared about something so domestic so common. This wasn't a missionary house or a home for wayward teens. 
This was where Ed and Gil Gunger were going to live. And it seemed that God moved to make it so. And we knew this answered prayer wasn't proof of our spirituality or our faith. But this was simply a God story. And we felt kissed. It was our first provision kiss from God. When you see God provide for you, it impacts you spiritually. The Bible says one result of God's supernatural provision for us is joy. In Deuteronomy 16, it says, For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvests and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. But there's more. You also feel God's love and embrace, and it breeds hope for the future, for other places where you might get stuck, that God would come. God's provision fosters wonder and awe. This is the wonderful side of money. Jesus said in Matthew 7, you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly Father, Father in heaven, give good gifts to those who dare to ask him? If we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? It's just too sweet to discover that God is really your father. If you've never had a moment where you have identified God's response to a need in your life that was beyond you, you need to start praying about this. God will come to you. But be aware that these adventures of wonder are only possible when we possess money without being possessed by money. This is where, if we're possessed by money, where the subject turns dark. This is the dark side to money. The scripture and teaching of the church over the millennia is clear. Money, provision, prosperity can be deadly to your soul. In Luke 6, Jesus says, woe to you who are rich. There's some woe in it when you have a lot or more than you need. Luke 12, watch out, Jesus says. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of that person's possessions. Your life isn't about what you have. In one case, money had become such an issue in this guy's life, a soul-destroying force in this person's life that Jesus ran into, that Jesus told him, get rid of it all. Sell your possessions. Give it to the poor. Come with me, Jesus tells him. Get out while you can. Paul warns about this in 1 Timothy 6. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith pierce themselves with many griefs. Another place Jesus claims, Matthew 16, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What's he saying? This business of money is dangerous. Why? Because there's something about money that competes for our devotion. There's something about money that grabs at your heart. 
Jesus said people serve money the way they serve God. It comes from the same place. And that you can't serve both money and God. They're opposed. Money transfers to its owner certain God-like features. For example, God is omnipotent, all-powerful. And those who possess lots of money tend to feel omnipotent. They feel as though they can do anything they want. God is omnipresent. Wealth also carries a hint of omnipresence because the wealthy believe they can go anywhere, be anywhere, anytime. God alone is omniscient, all-knowing. But the rich come to believe that they know more than those without wealth and that they can find out whatever they want. We cannot be casual about the love of money, about how it vies to replace God in our lives. The first commandment of the Decalogue, Ten Commandments, you remember, Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods next to me, before me, around me. Money is a rival God. Most preachers who overemphasize prosperity are completely silent about money's dark side. It's as if they believe money is only good and that the more we get, the better we are. But Jesus never bought into the idea that affluence is only a good sign. In fact, he tended to espouse quite the opposite. He would say things like Matthew 19, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. You don't look for God's influence. You have your own. First Timothy 6, Paul warns about corrupt church leaders who, quote, think that godliness is a means to financial gain, end quote. Or think that giving is a means to financial gain, that you're somehow in control. What do you do with texts like these? Well, first, you just simply listen. No rationale, no explanations. Just listen of the warnings about money. Something begins to emerge in us when we get still and let these texts speak for themselves. And to be honest, it's a little terrifying to listen to them. But we all need a good scare now and again. <laughs> money can be a threat to your faith. Money can be a threat to your soul. So how do we navigate between trusting God and having provision miracles and seeing God work in our lives and being controlled by money? How do you navigate between those poles? The answer is in the grace of giving. This is the secret to experiencing the wonderful side of money where you can enjoy the provision of a loving father while staying free from money's dark, idolatrous pull on your soul. The act of giving secures that for us. This is why Jesus is so huge on giving. Paul is talking about this in Acts 20. He said, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, help the other. Remembering the words of Jesus himself, as he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. There's something better than getting everything you want. There's something better than getting everything you want. There's something better than getting everything you want. It's giving to everything you want. Being in a space where 
Maybe not a lot, but you respond to everything you see in some little way. You give. Gail and I are in our late 60s. We didn't used to be that. We actually were young ones. We used to have little more than nothing, but we were givers. We tithed. We jumped in when special needs came up. We don't put this on parade, never have put it on parade, but we have tasted a freedom and a joy that we think has come from our disposition about this business of giving. It's a treasure to us. It's one of those pearls that are precious in our heart. That's why we don't beat people with giving. It's, we won't want to cast pearl before swine, right? We don't want to cast pearl before people that think it's worthless or think it's a manipulation. So we have it close in our soul. Giving touches a nerve in us that nothing else does. It makes us look a lot like God when we do it. John 3, 16, most of you know it. For God so loved the world that he, that he gave. When you give, you defy the fear that you won't have enough. You insult greed, which is the impulse to only acquire, to only possess. You open up your capacity to dream and to imagine because you're connected to something more than yourself, God. And faith in God's provision gets easier as you give. When you really believe God owns it all and that God is your source and provider, giving becomes a simple matter. Contrarywise, if you believe that what you have is yours and you're unsure whether God had anything to do with getting it to you, you'll hold on to your money for dear life and be offended when anyone talks about it. The arena of giving is the only place where exactly what's going on in your heart is revealed. According to Jesus, giving keeps your heart in motion toward God and away from material things. That's what he was talking about when he said in the context of giving, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. He's saying your heart will flow into the direction of your, where you put treasure, where you give, what you give towards. If you throw money at or give to things that bring glory to God, your heart will be running toward God. It will be open to God, who is the richest being in the universe. There's nothing wrong with praying for increase and in success unless there are hidden reefs of discontentment or greed or idolatry in your heart. That's when this becomes problematic. James warns about this in James 4. When you ask, you don't receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives. Your heart's not right. That you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. In other words, it's always about you. The actual practice of giving will keep your heart clean and will position you to trust God in appropriate ways for material increase. That's why Paul calls giving a grace. In 2 Corinthians 8, he says, but since you excel in everything, church, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in what? The grace of giving. Why is it a grace? Because it's based on love. The giving gesture was modeled by Jesus. In the same chapter, it says about Jesus, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, he gave, so that through his poverty, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I'm talking about 
rich in a crazy, I mean, where you have everything, but enough. Look at the motive, though, behind the giving here. Jesus' motive in giving was so that others would become rich. Jesus' motive in giving was for others. Not to get on a gimmick. Notice giving is not connected to you becoming rich or you having enough. The focus of giving should always be on others. Now let me get in trouble before we finish here. That would be appropriate. The law of sowing and reaping is a truth in the kingdom of God, but not so that you can make God your provider. God just is the provider, period. God cares for you, period. God will hear your cry and answer you if you're in trouble financially, period. If you never tithed, God will take care of you if you trust him. If you never gave a dime in an offering and you were a terrible, stingy curmudgeon, God will take care of you if you trust him. The motive for giving should never be give so you can get. Giving is not a quid pro quo for God's provision. This just becomes an easy cover-up for greed. That's why you don't hear us say those kind of things. What we are after when we give is what giving does in us and for others. I want to give you four quick things, and we'll let you go. One, giving expands our faith to be able to give more easily and to trust God, God as our provider. Giving rips through fear which always hinders faith and builds hope in us. We must give, not to manipulate God, but to cleanse our souls. Remember Jesus' reading. This was to the poor. Don't worry about your life, what you eat, what you drink, your body, what you wear. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. These things will be given to you. How do you seek first the kingdom? Be a giver. Think about others' needs. Second thing. Giving keeps us clean from worshiping money. Remember, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Nobody here wants any evil, much less all kinds. Three, giving makes you indifferent to need or abundance. Paul's famous statement, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any in every circumstance, whether well-fed or whether living in plenty or living, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives strength to me. Giving does this. I mean, you continue to be responsible for what you're responsible for, but no more financial sweating. And lastly, giving helps us to obey the greatest command, to love God and to love people. I'm very liberal when it comes to using taxes to help the poor or to those who have very little resources. But I don't think that truly the good news to the poor is that your government will take care of you. I think the good news to the poor is that God will take care of you, Allah Jesus, and will bring you from strength to strength. The poor must hear God wants to help them too. And like any of us, they must face their fear and their sense of being stuck in poverty by looking at what is in their hand 
and by learning to give a portion of it to meet the needs of another like Jesus modeled. Now, many who are poor may never respond to that. That doesn't mean we shouldn't still help them. We have to still help them. Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always, and we need to remember them. But really, the hope of anyone stuck is to recognize that God wants to help everybody get unstuck. Giving is how faith in God grows in any of us and how we can live in those spaces Catherine Marshall describes where she said, our God and father of all life takes care of the shape herders, lost lamb, the fallen sparrow, the sick child, the hunger pangs of a thousand or four thousand, the plight of professional a fisherman who toiled all night, the needing of wine at the uh, wedding, uh, the father cares enough for you to help you with your house payment even when your water heater explodes. God will give you guidance to secure new employment when your sector gets hit and you find yourself without a job. Where you have, the, where you have to have wisdom to peel off enough to put away from your, for your retirement. God helps with all of that stuff. Hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The God who created the universe is wanting to lean into your life with provision. Now, five modalities for giving articulated in the gospel that opens up this space, but we'll talk about that next week. Stand with me. I want us to do our generosity prayer right now instead of later. Let's say this in faith. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We bring nothing into this world and we take nothing out of it. We who call Jesus Lord devote ourselves to resisting greed, which plunges the human heart into ruin and pierces it with many griefs. We are determined to practice generosity with free hearts, fixing our hope on God and not the uncertainty of wealth. We desire to be rich in good deeds and willing to share all that we have, laying up for ourselves treasure that will not decay, but will shine in the age to come. Amen.